0: So I heard a, a story this week. I was listening to a podcast from Mike Rowe. It's a great story. Uh, he tells of a, a woman named Bertha who uh, believed in her husband completely, believed that her husband could change their world, believed that her husband uh, could, could change the, the trajectory of their family. However, the problem was No one else believed in him, right? And so for years they struggled. For years uh, they, they just saw their finances dwindle until they finally came to a point where they are out of options and she decides it's time to go see mom. So she gets up early in the morning. She takes her two oldest sons with her. She leaves a note for her husband and she is out to hit the road. Now in those days the road... Uh, And hitting the road was not an easy thing. Uh, The roads weren't much to speak of. In fact, going up hills, she had to get her sons out of the car to push uh, so they could make it all the way up the hill while she navigated around the ruts in the dirt roads, right? But she traveled on. And she got to a point in this journey uh, where she ran out of fuel, There was no gas station around. And so she hiked into the nearest town that had a pharmacy and she got a cleaning agent that was petroleum based, hoping that it would have enough, you create enough combustion in the engine to continue on. So she pours it in the fuel tank and the car fires back up. On they go. Well, then the fuel line clogs. Stopped along the road in the middle of nowhere, she pulls out, figures out what's wrong, uses one of her hairpins to unclog the fuel line, put it back together and keep going right pretty, uh, pretty pretty creative woman, then, a uh, little a little further along there's a, a, a wire overheats a, a wire on the spark plug and breaks off, so she reattaches the wire and uses her garter as insulation on the wire to get this thing going, right. Finally, after twelve hours of hard journey, she arrives at her parents house now the the, the boys are thrilled to see their grandparents, grandparents are thrilled to see their grandchildren, they all sit down to have dinner. And over dinner, she explains the predicament that their family is in. She explains her plan to get her family out of the situation that they're in. And her mom is skeptical, but she's supportive and just tells her, take every precaution on your journey back home. Which was good advice, because on the journey back home, the brakes failed. So she got some rubber uh, from a shoemaker and nailed it back on the, pads, uh, the brake pads of the car so that the brakes would again begin to work and finished her way home. Finally, she arrives at home to her husband, who is eagerly awaiting her arrival. But there were other people eagerly awaiting her arrival as well. In fact, the whole town had come out to await her arrival and more than that, the newspapers came out to await her arrival. Because what Bertha had done in a time when the longest road trip previously taken was 40 feet, she traveled 120 miles to her parents' home and back. Her husband, Carl Benz, had invented the Benz patent motor wagon. And she embarked on the very first road trip ever in history, and in doing that, of course, she caused quite a stir among the town and beyond as the newspaper articles came out, and that moment did, in fact, change not only their family and their fortunes, of course, Mercedes-Benz is still a car company we know today, right? Uh, Not only did it change their fortunes, but it changed history, it changed the way mankind would view transportation forever in the very first horseless carriage and her, and her histor- historic drive to her parents' house and back. Today, as we look at Ephesians, and specifically I want to dive into verses 17 and 18 of this next sentence that Paul is, is giving us, uh, which is fifteen through the end of, of chapter one, as we as we look into verses seventeen and eighteen, Paul is praying for the ephesians and and what he 's praying for is is a particular knowing that they would have and, and, and what i 'm calling the sermon is is um, knowledge without knowing, knowledge without knowing. You see uh, it is possible to know much about God and yet still not know God. This is what Paul is praying about, that they, as the the Ephesians, would get to know God personally rather than just knowing about him. In fact, Paul warns in in 2 Timothy 3, uh, verse verse 5, he says, uh, he's, he's giving a warning to Timothy about People who would, who would know uh, or who would have knowledge without knowing. Uh, verse 5, he says, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. Um, skip down to uh, verse 7, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. He's warning Timothy against these people, these teachers who would be always learning, always learning, always learning. I think sometimes in church we do this. We're always learning, but do we know Do we really know God? Always learning, never arriving at a knowledge of the truth. He warns against those people. And and Paul warns against these people, I think, because he was one of these people. Paul was a Pharisee, the religious of all religious people. He knew so much about God. He knew the Scriptures inside and out. He had vast portions of Scripture memorized Committed to his own knowledge. He, he was so involved in, in knowledge about God and yet missed entirely knowing God himself. Because Paul was a, was a persecutor of church, of course, right? He, he was opposed to what God was doing. He was opposed to Jesus. He was opposed to Christianity. He even oversaw the arrest and the murder of Christians to stop this thing that was happening which of course was God's doing. Had he known God, he wouldn't have stood in his way, but he didn't, he knew a lot about God. This was Paul's problem. And then Paul, famously on the road to Damascus, has this encounter where Jesus shows up, post-resurrection Jesus shows up and confronts Paul and tells him, uh, you know, essentially, you, you have known a lot about me, but now you're gonna know me. Now you're going to know me. And, and Jesus reveals himself and reveals the father of Paul in a way like he had never been revealed before. And he's blinded, physically blinded, literally blinded. He can't see. Uh, he, he has some guys help him into town. And then uh, God sends one of his servants to go and pray over Paul that, that he would be given his vision again. And in fact, what happens is he, as he prays over him, this is um, Acts chapter 9, verse 18. Uh, he, he prays over him, and verse 18, and immediately something like scales fell from his eye. What happened to Paul? Well, he, he was made physically blind. God did this as a metaphor to show him you've been spiritually blind. And what happens is the scales, something like scales fall from his eyes. Now he can literally see again. And he can spiritually see. He's able to know God in a way like he had never known God. So this is Paul who's writing this letter to the Ephesians. That's why I'm setting this up to explain that Paul was intimate both with knowing about God, in the absence of knowing God, and knowing God personally. Paul had experienced both. And he was praying over and praying for the Ephesians that they would know God in this way. My my question to you as we delve into this passage further, my question is is this, do you know God or do you simply know about God? Do you know God personally? Do, Do you have an intimate relationship with God or do you merely know much about God? This is what We are faced with in this passage, in this verse, as Paul prays that the Ephesians, who by the way, are Christians, right? He's established in in his first sentence, which for us spans essentially from verse 1 through verse, uh, what, 14. He establishes that these are believers. These are people in the church. The, The letter is to those who make up the church at Ephesus. This is a letter to people in the church, and his prayer is that they would know God, Right? This is not just something for the non-Christian. Oh, I pray that they someday will know God, although I, I, certainly we could apply it to that. But he's saying, I pray that the Christians would know God like this. And so I think in many ways, as it's a letter to the Ephesians, it can be a letter to the church of outward that is at Silverton, right? Uh, it, it's a letter to us. It's a, it's a letter to me. It's a prayer for us. It's a prayer for me. Would you know God? I think this this knowledge can break down in in three ways. Uh, This is how I would would parse it anyway. Uh, That we need to have an accurate knowledge, an experiential knowledge, and, and a profound knowledge. Let's explore each of those. An accurate knowledge... It it is significant, and as Paul... Let's read here again in in verse uh, 17. uh, That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. Paul wants us to know specifically the Father of glory. We, we talk a lot about knowing Jesus, I think, as, as evangelical churches. We, we do this a lot as, as a Bible-teaching, Bible-believing church. We, we talk a lot about Jesus, and appropriately so. He, Jesus is, is our Savior. He's our Lord. But this specific passage, this longing to know God is is a longing uh, to know God the Father, the Father of glory, the the first in the the three persons of our triune God, right? Uh, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Paul wants us to know the Father of glory. Paul wants us to know the Father, which is enabled... Uh, by the Son, through the Spirit. So we have this beautiful Trinitarian language in this verse 17. All three persons of the Godhead showing up in this verse as we we know the Father uh, through the Son, by the Spirit. Really great. So he wants us to know the Father of glory. He wants us to know the hope to which He has called you. Paul wants us to know the hope which God has called us to, he wants us to experience and know peace and hope in our life, hope that only God, the Father of glory, can give us. He wants us to know this hope intimately, and he wants us to know the riches of the inheritance. Now, there's, there's many aspects of the inheritance which we receive through Christ in the Father. There, there's many aspects of the inheritance, right? The Heaven is, is the first one that comes to mind for me anyway, we think of heaven, we think of of eternity with God, we we, we think of of this wonderful place where there there are no more tears, right, the the streets paved with gold, all of these things, and this is all good, heaven is wonderful, we do look forward to God's kingdom coming fully, but I would say the lion's share of, of the riches of the inheritance is knowing God himself. That we would be able to know the Creator God who made all things. That we could know Him not as a distant, mysterious entity out there somewhere, but a personal, intimate knowledge of the God who made us. That's what He's after. That is the riches of the inheritance that we get to receive. And you know what is so great? We don't have to wait until this life ends to experience that part of our inheritance we get to experience some of the riches of the inheritance that is coming to us in in our relationship with the father as we know him this is part of why paul is praying this i believe he wants us to know and truly experience uh, that that foretaste of our inheritance that we get isn't that so good this is so good this is such good news Now, the reason I'm talking about accurate knowledge, the reason I call this accurate knowledge is because it's not enough just just to know some vague and generic truth, right? We live in a culture today that says the phrase frequently, know your truth. Man, I had fun on a Google search for know your truth, reading some of these nonsensical articles and blog posts. Ultimately, it was a rabbit hole of no value, so I'm not going to quote any of it. it was, I'm like, this is I got to got bail. I got to get out. This is insane. Uh, <laughs> there's just like utter nonsense being taught to to and through our culture today. Know your truth. Look on the inside. Find whatever makes you feel good and pursue that. What's on the inside is the problem. Right? What's on the inside is what's bumming me out. What's on the inside is what's causing depression and anxiety. What's on the inside is what's corrupted and wicked and evil and sinful. Don't look inside for truth. That is the worst advice we can give. Don't look inside. Don't find your truth. Find the truth. Truth, my friends, is objective, not subjective. Truth is a concrete thing. Right, I I spoke a couple weeks ago, I used the example of gravity. It's such a great example. Gravity is a true thing, right? You need only to fall to discover the truth of gravity. And you can look inside yourself and and envision weightlessness, and you can leap and find the truth of gravity, right? It is a truth, it is a reality that needs to be dealt with. Truth is is a concrete thing. It is an objective thing. It is something that, that we don't get to debate with just because we don't like it, right? You can debate with gravity all you want. It doesn't change it. Truth is a real thing. There is, there is a truth which is found in God. There is a truth, and, and it, is, it is revealed to us because th- this idea, this notion of just choosing whatever seems good to you, whatever seems true to you, it just doesn't work. Logically, it falls apart. It it has no substance whatsoever. So truth, it is important that we have an accurate knowledge of the truth, an accurate knowledge of what is really objectively true. Truth is fixed. Okay, so, so accurate knowledge, Paul wants us to know the real God. He wants us to know truth, the truth that Jesus reveals to us. He wants us to know that. And then beyond that, he wants us to experience this knowledge, right? It, it, it is an experiential knowledge, a knowledge which comes from experience. It would maybe be a, a better way of putting that. Jonathan Edwards has a great metaphor, it's been used and reused many, many times, you're probably familiar with it, or some of you may be familiar with it, some of you may not be, Uh, but but he gives the, the metaphor of honey, right, you can read about honey in all of its detail, you can, you can learn all about honey, someone can describe to you the taste, you can look at the color of honey, that golden color, you can observe it, you can touch it and feel uh, the thickness of it and the stickiness of it, all of that helps you to know a lot about honey, but you do not yet know honey. What do you need in order to know honey? We have to experience it. You have to taste it. When you taste honey for the first time, when you experience honey, your understanding is completely changed. No amount of learning, no amount of books, no amount of, uh, you know, lectures or preaching on honey will ultimately change your understanding until you experience it. It is experience which we need when speaking of the knowledge of God. Uh, A good friend of mine, we grew up together, um, he, uh, he grew up in a Christian family, went to church every week. I didn't. Uh, didn't, didn't go to church all the time uh, or, or hardly at all. Um, and, and we had a different experience growing up, right? Uh, he was a very moral person. I mean, just, you know, straight A, did everything right, everything his parents asked him to do, everything the Bible asked him to do, from my view, perfectly moral. Never got in trouble in school, never had a bad grade. I mean, this guy was just a model of morality, and that would sometimes cause some degree of friction between us, even though we were friends. Uh, I was not so much a model of morality, <laughs> well, right? Uh, and, and so we would sometimes do different things. We would approach a problem differently, uh, and, and uh, I would often uh, find, find the results of that, uh, n- not, not so uh, morally uh, perfect I- in that way. Well, my, my friend grew up going to church all the time, and he knew a lot about God. I mean, he, he had, you know, lots of Bible memorized. He, he had gone to church, like I say, all the time, gone to all the youth groups, gone to all the camps, all of this stuff. He knew a lot about God. He was very moral, worked very, very hard. And then in our 20s, I remember having a conversation, I remember having a conversation with him, and, and he, honestly, he, he just kind of broke down and, and, and was real with me. And he said, man, my, uh, uh, my girlfriend and I, we're not married, but we've been sleeping together. And I know that's wrong. My parents tell me it's wrong. The Bible tells me it's wrong. And I've just been like willfully sinning like I've never sinned before in my life. And I just came to this realization that I'm not okay with God. Uh, or he's not okay with me. Like I, I have been sinning and and walking around proudly uh, like it's no big deal. And and finally, the weight of my sin hit me, and my friend was heartbroken, wrecked like he had never been before. For the first time in his life, he realized he was not perfect. Far from it. He was a broken and wretched sinner who could not work his way out of this hole. He realized that the debt he owed to God now was beyond what he could ever pay. He came to a realization of of this in a way that he had never been before, and he was just destroyed over it. But you know what the very next thought was? God's grace, right? This thing that he knew so much about finally mattered, He finally knew it. And and he was overwhelmed with the goodness of God. He was overwhelmed with the kindness of God, the mercy of God that would see him as this broken and wretched sinner and would say, I know. I sent Jesus to die on the cross to forgive you for that. I knew you would do that. This doesn't change our relationship. Believe in me. Place your faith in me, I forgive all of that. And he was overwhelmed by the grace and the mercy of God. And, and it changed forever his his relationship with God. And honestly, it changed forever our relationship. Uh, all of a sudden, the 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 maybe you know some of the judgment that may have existed. Uh, both ways, me judging him, uh, you know, Mr. Perfect, uh, and, and him judging me, uh, Mr. Sinner, uh, like all of a sudden there was like common ground built not on sin, common ground built on the grace of God. It was awesome. It was so awesome. When we, when we look at this, when we ask this question like, well, how do I experience the knowledge of God? Well, I think like this, this may start, and, and I think there's lots of ways that this can happen. One, you know, the way this happened for my friend, uh, the way it happened similarly for me is, is it starts with a realization of our own sin. Now, did my friend need to engage in some form of sexual sin to actually need God's mercy? No, no. It was it was a failure in his understanding. He needed God's mercy just as much before he ever committed that sin. Right, his pride. Was, was so all-consuming that it was actually keeping him from God. His sinful pride, seeing himself as perfect and spotless, seeing himself as Savior, not Jesus, all of that is sin. Did he need the grace of God before he engaged in, in some big and, and visible sin? Yes, he needed God's grace just as much then as he did now. He was made more aware of it. What, what we need is not to sin greater. I had another friend that, that decided to try that out. was uh, like, well, I'm just going to go sin a whole bunch and see where that gets me. Not good, okay? Uh, not a good idea, right? I'm not encouraging anyone, go sin a bunch so you can experience God's grace. No, what you need is not more sin. You need to, you need to understand your sin. You need to be aware of your sin, which is plentiful for all of us. We've got more sin than we can ever reckon with, more sin than we could ever deal with. The best of us in this room is completely and utterly helpless apart from the grace of God. We need to see that and experience that. I think we need to, to, in a sense, kind of uh, see our sins, see our own sins, see our own helplessness, see our utter dependence on on a good and merciful and gracious God in order to experience the knowledge of God in this way, right? So it's an understanding of our sin and an understanding of who God is. To say it another way, uh, we need to understand ourselves and how sinful we are. We need to understand God and how perfect and holy he is. And we need to understand what God did to bridge that gap by sending Jesus to rescue us. Only, Only when we ponder that when we we take time to consider that, when we uh, maybe sit in an uncomfortable position of of understanding both our failure and God's great victory, that we can experience the knowledge of God. Knowing God is, is a... It's a personal thing. He is a personal God. Amos 3, uh, God, God is, is speaking through the Moses, Amos, and he, he's telling the nation of Israel, which is his chosen people at that time. In the Old Testament, God chose the Israelites, and he, and, and he speaks of how he chose to know them. Well, did God not know intellectually of the other nations? Was God surprised that other people were on the earth? Like, whoa, there's somebody there. How about that? No, of course not, right? He knows everything. God knows of these people. But when he speaks of knowing the Israelites, we're we're talking to this intimate, personal knowledge. That's the way that God knows us. He chooses to know us closely and intimately and significantly. He chooses uh, to know us. This is, um, uh, uh, let me find here, the way, that a, uh, the way that, that a shepherd knows his sheep or the way that a king knows his subjects, the way a husband knows his wife or the way a father knows his son. These are four metaphors that the Bible uses for this word to know. Right. This is the knowing that we're talking about. This is It goes beyond knowing of and it is a, a close and personal and intimate thing. This is, this is what... Uh, what Paul is praying for. Uh, And and in John, I would would just point out John 1, 17. uh, The the Apostle John uh, is telling us here, uh, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Right, there's that word truth again. This is absolute, concrete, iron truth comes through Uh, Through Jesus Christ, no one has ever seen God, the only God. We're speaking of God, the Father here, who's at the Father's side. He has made him known. Jesus has made known to us, those who would follow Jesus, he has made the Father known in this close and personal way. Uh, And and one last one here in John 17, uh, verse 1. Uh, Jesus is praying for his followers his disciples at that time and by extension praying for us now. He's praying and saying, Father, the hour is come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you. This is eternal life that they know you. Do you see how God wants to know us and wants us to know him Personally, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is the experiential knowledge. And finally, I'll move on to, to the profound knowledge. Uh, having an accurate knowledge of real truth and experiencing that in a way that is personal and intimate leads us to a profound knowledge, leads us to a knowledge which changes everything. It changes our life. I would say without exception. It changes our life. Having an accurate knowledge and experiencing the knowledge and knowing God personally will have a profound change on your life. This is not a call to work harder. right? Paul is not praying that the Ephesians would do more, work harder, go to church more, give more, serve more, go to more community groups, more days of the week, read more Bible, spend more time in prayer, none of that. Now there's a place for all of that, but it comes after knowing. The prayer here is is to know God, not to work harder. What we need is not more work, but we need a complete transformation of our motives. Complete transformation of our motives. Um, Let me see, Tim Tim Keller, uh, preacher and theologian Tim Keller, he says, self-salvation through good works may produce a great deal of moral behavior in your life, but inside you are miserable. He goes on to say, you need a complete transformation of the very motives of your heart. See, when we know God, when we experience God, the motives of our heart, the desires of our heart are changed. We no longer desire and want the things of the flesh. We no longer want and desire the things of our old self. We want and we desire the things of God. We want and desire to be with Him. We want and desire to be in His Word so we can be close to Him and hear from Him. We want to go to church more and community groups and all these things because we, we want to be around God's people, Christ's body. We want to serve so that more people can come and be welcomed into the church, that they can find a place that is, that is welcoming and, and warm and accepting. Because we want more people to experience God. Do you see how Do you see how this changes? When the motives of our heart change, we do those things. We do Christian things. But but not out of a sense of obligation, not to earn our salvation, but because it's what we want to do. God's changed the very motivation, the the very desires of our heart. That's the profound knowledge of God at work. I... uh, uh, as I mentioned, I didn't grow up going to church. Started going to church in, um, started going to youth group late in middle school and, and through high school. Uh, went, went to youth group almost every week. Began to learn about God. Even uh, I picked up a Bible and started reading some some Bible because I wanted to know more about God. I wanted to know these stories that the the, the guy teaching the, the lesson would reference. I didn't know Moses or, or who he was or Abraham or or any of these people, so I thought, well, I should read the Bible and learn about this. This was all a process of me learning about God. I turned 18. I started going to church uh, on on Sundays. Uh, started going to a church, attending every week. Started serving on the greeting team, like some of you do. I was I was you know standing at the door and, and greeting people as they're coming in. Uh, they found out I, I played drums, and they started having me play drums on the worship team. Pretty soon, I was serving uh, almost four weeks a month. I mean, there was an occasional week I would take off, but I was serving all the time. I was learning a lot about God, completely lacking a knowing relationship with God, completely lacking that. And, and that was evidenced by the fact that, that there was no uh, no difference, no discernible difference in my life five years after attending that church and learning about God from the, the year prior to going to that church. There, 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 was, there was more knowledge about God, but there was no change in the motivation of my heart. I still wanted to do the same things that I had always wanted to do. Much of that was sinful. Uh, none of that glorified God, but, you know, I, I, I was building my own kingdom. Uh, working and building my business, I, I was, you know, doing all these things. I, I had gotten married at that time. Uh, some of you know that story. I, I got married fairly young. Um, we were kind of doing doing our own thing. This was this was Brian operating without knowledge, uh, with knowledge of God, not knowing God uh, at all, right? And then. What happened is uh, ultimately my, uh, my wife at the time uh, decided to leave, decided she wanted to be with someone else. I was, I was wrecked, ruined, devastated. Uh, this kingdom that I was building was falling apart. Uh, the recession kicked in and, and the business was, was falling. Um, the value in the house was dropping, like everything I felt like that I was building, my, my whole kingdom was crumbling around me. And I was, I felt helpless and worthless and and depressed. and, And I was just overwhelmed with grief over what was happening. In the midst of that, something happened though. I met God. Moved from knowing about God to knowing God personally. I was struck finally by the, 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 the helpless state my sin put me in. I was finally aware of my sinfulness. I was finally aware that my sin wasn't something that was manageable. But it was, it was coursing through my veins. And as my world fell apart, I, I came to this realization that either... This thing I've been doing is, is nonsense. Or I'm missing something key here. It turned out I was missing something. I was missing God. I was missing that relationship with him. But God, right, the greatest two words in the Bible, but God who is rich in mercy, he saw me and he saved me in that moment. He, he stepped in and, and, and in a sense introduced himself to me changed my relationship with God, changed, uh, you know, as I I began to learn who the real God was, and as I began to experience Him, I saw that profound change begin to happen. The motivations of my heart began to change. The things that I wanted to do, the things that I wanted out of life began to change. This was God, the, the Holy Spirit, working out in me my salvation, this was God transforming my life. Uh, last story I'll tell you. Uh, my, my wife uh, we were just talking about this this morning a little bit, and, and she was talking about the, the moment where she was faced with her sin. My wife grew up going to church, uh, you know, had, I, I don't know, has ever missed a Sunday in, in her whole life. but there was a moment where she was faced with the reality of her sin, and she said, "I came to this realization that I was doomed." She said, I was doomed or God is truly as gracious as I was always taught. I am doomed or God is truly as gracious as I was always taught. And as she leaned into that and pressed into that, of course, she discovered that God is not only as gracious as she was taught, but infinitely more so, infinitely more so. That was her experiencing God and, and that profound knowledge beginning to change her life. This is the knowledge which changes everything. This is the knowledge which Paul has been praying for for the Ephesians, that they would know. Let's, let's read it one last time. Verse 17. That God... the knowledge we need. Many people knew about Carl Benz's horseless carriage. Many people knew about it. It was no secret in town. But it wasn't until Bertha gave them the gift of experiencing the automobile that their opinions really began to change. It wasn't until she showed people and and gave them the gift of experiencing how, how different... Life would be with the automobile that they truly began to understand what this meant for their lives, right? Seeing and experiencing this first automobile had a profound change not only on the people that experienced it, but it had a profound change on transportation in the world. Similarly, seeing and experiencing an accurate knowledge of God the Father will have a profound effect on our lives.